This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Eggie Dubol. Uh, today on the show, a campaigner against multi-level marketing firm has been banned in New Zealand. Is calling on Australia to follow suit. A Bangladeshi refugee in Papua New Guinea says he fears for his safety. And FIFA's head of women's football hopes the legacy of the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand will be an explosion of interest in soccer in the Pacific. I'm Aggie Dubon. This is Pacific Beat. Well, a campaigner against a multi-level marketing firm banned by New Zealand authorities is calling on Australia to follow suit. The US-based Validus has pushed its product largely among Tongan communities in the two countries until it was permanently banned by New Zealand's Financial Markets Authority in March. The company's appeal was thrown out at Auckland High Court last week. But as Mackenzie Smith reports, concerns remain for Australia's Tongan community. Tionli Fandukala has been at the forefront of efforts to bring Validus to the attention of authorities in New Zealand. She's been waging a one-woman campaign against questionable financial products after she herself was ripped off in a pyramid scheme circulating among the Tongan community some years ago. Ms Fadukala welcomes the Financial Management Authority's permanent ban on Validus but says it's a bittersweet victory. I'm proud of FMA but... I'm I'm kind of disappointed and feel very sad because I know a lot of victims have lost their money trusting this system and platform and false promises. Validus describes itself as a network marketing company providing what it calls financial education packages to its members. In promotional material, Validus claims the money spent on those packages will then be invested in stocks, foreign exchanges and cryptocurrency and provide returns of up to 350%. The FMA placed a temporary ban on Validus's activities back in May. Validus then went to court to appeal the ban, but earlier this month, the High Court dismissed the appeal. Its judgment noted Validus was mostly advertised to the Tongan community. A tactic Tionli Fatukala says preyed on people's trust and religious authority. Our Tongan community, especially um, religion, believe um, what they were promising through um, it's a blessing and people fell for that. Even new people that didn't even join Paramount two years ago, they also knew New crowd came in. At the centre of the FMA's case against Validus was a seminar in Auckland last year where spokespeople gave a presentation advertising rewards on investments of up to 350% after 60 weeks. To meet these returns, investors were encouraged to contribute tens of thousands of dollars. In a statement, Paul Gregory, the FMA's Executive Director of Response and Enforcement, said they determined the claims were false. Seminar attendees were induced to purchase, purchased or intend to purchase educational packages in reliance on false or misleading representations. They will not receive the promoted return on their money or be able to withdraw that money they are likely to suffer material financial harm. Gregory urged the public to stay away from Validus and its offers and instead seek out investments the FMA is able to monitor and protect. 
Meanwhile, in Australia, Validus appears to remain in operation. Last month, it updated its Facebook page to advertise 400,000 members reached. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, issued a scam alert last year and described Validus's encouragement to members to recruit new investors as a classical sign of a pyramid scheme. It said Validus appears to be operating a financial services business but does not have a licence in Australia, so if things go wrong, customers will not be protected. In response to the permanent ban in New Zealand, ASIC said there had been no update to their position. The alert remains current, but that's it. Tracy Burgess, Validus's Oceania vice president, did not respond to Pacific Beat's request for comment. Tionli Fatukala says she'll continue to fight and raise awareness in the Tongan community about Validus's risks. I hope that the Australian authorities will act just like New Zealand and ban Validus from there. Tionli Fatukala there, ending that report from Mackenzie Smith. Pacific Beat. Well, a Bangladeshi refugee in Papua New Guinea says he fears for his safety after a confrontation uh, with members of a local business association. The association lodged a complaint against the man, claiming he is involved in human trafficking and dealing drugs. But the refugee denies the allegations, saying he is being targeted by business rivals. Uh, Marion Farr has more. Alam Buyan fled his home in Bangladesh in 2013 to seek asylum in Australia. He was taken to an Australian detention centre on Manus Island and was held there for six years. Now living in Port Moresby, he manages a retail shop owned by his Papua New Guinean wife. It's a grocery mini supermarket. But the 39-year-old claims he's being targeted by business rivals in the nation's capital. In late May, the Bangladesh Business Association in Port Moresby called him in for a meeting. Mr Buyan says he was questioned about his immigration status and intimidated by members of the association. He was trying to punch me in front of my wife, is that? Okay, then I told my wife, something is going to happen, you start the video. A video taken by his wife shows Mr. Buyan being forced into the meeting room. No, you don't, you don't care for this. You don't have to do that. You let them, that's the association, so let them do their meeting. But my husband is not on that They talk to him. That is all the problem, it's not that in a separate video taken by Mr Buyan inside, members of the association are heard threatening to write a complaint against him to get him deported. Some of the threaten, like they say, if I write a complaint from here to immigration, you cannot stay in PNG one minute. Mr Buyan says he felt afraid. I wanted to come out. I was not agreeing to sit down with them because there are around six people. Six people, they were like pushing him like, forcing me, like me feeling like depressed and me come out. He later found out the association had already lodged a complaint against him with PNG's chief migration officer. It accuses him of human trafficking, drug dealing and entering a local shop with an illegal firearm. The association also claims he obtained refugee status by giving a false statement to Australian immigration officials. Mr Buyan denies the allegations. What is the evidence? Myself, I have been PNG now 10 years. If you see the, any police record or immigration record, you cannot find any in this allegation. Mr Buyan claims he's being targeted by business rivals within the Bangladeshi community. 
I'm scared about something. Something is going on is very bad. The Bangladesh Business Association in PNG has not responded to the ABC's request for comment. It told local media outlet, The Post Courier, that Mr Buyan's claims about being threatened and beaten were false and made to tarnish the association's reputation. The BBA said the meeting was called to resolve infighting between Mr Buyan and another Bangladeshi national. High-profile Bangladeshi business owner Muhammad Abdul Wahed told Pacific Beat the issue had been raised with PNG authorities. At this stage, we have to respect the process and as such will not comment or provide answer to your questions until all investigations are completed. Ian Rintel, spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition, says the case highlights the difficulty refugees may face in PNG. I mean, it's an exceptional case in, in one respect, and that is managed because of his marriage, you know, to be able to set up a little business to eke out an existence, you know. But as I said, there are all kinds of, um, you know, limitations to that. Um, but it does raise issues about all the promises that were made uh, to, you know, the refugees, the possibilities of, of citizenship, of family reunion, etc. none of which have actually come, you know, to, uh, you know, to fruition. About 80 refugees remain in Papua New Guinea after Australia closed its offshore processing centres on Manus Island. Mr Buyan says he was originally optimistic about resettling in PNG. Before I was... I have confidence like I can stay here or I can support my life here with my family doing business. Now he says he feels his future in the country is uncertain. You you see, uh, now my life is very risky staying in PNG too. Bangladeshi refugee Alam Buyan, that was Marion Farr reporting. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inside Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inside Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Uh, we head to the Solomon Islands now where a new beekeeping program is helping women and young people make some extra cash uh, while steering the community away from harmful farming practices like logging. Uh, Melissa Makem has the story. In one remote community in Malaita province, 10,000 bees have recently taken up residence and local keepers in training are buzzing to get to work. Farmer Allison is one of 74 people participating in a new program to learn about beekeeping and honey production. With honeybee training, I know if I do it well, I'll be able to earn money for my family. What I hear is that for one kilo, it is $200 and I can produce up to $4,000. So I'm like, wow. The program teaches women and young people how to diversify their incomes by producing and selling honey. It's also helping communities move away from logging, which accounted for 60% of the country's exports in 2019. As the Pacific remains at the epicentre of climate change, Solomon Islands has the unfortunate title of being the world's second most vulnerable country when it comes to disasters. 
And with two-thirds of the country's population living within one kilometre of the coast, the threat of rising sea levels, extreme weather and food shortages is real. And I think that goes down to children as well. They're the ones who are going to be most at risk and whose futures are going to be most affected by the, the impact of climate change. And yet they're the ones who've had least contribution to the causes. That's Save the Children Acting Country Director Paul Green. He says the beekeeping program, which is being run by his organisation and local environmental group Maima Asina Greenbelt, is really focusing on promoting women and children's rights. Farmer Alison and her six children have witnessed the impacts firsthand following a recent cyclone. One time when I was just married into this family, a strong wind blew down all the houses in our area. Our own home was blown down too. And when our house collapsed, everything was blown away. All the walls, the windows were blown away. The floor was the only part of the house that remained. We escaped with only the clothes on our back. It rains for weeks and this kills our crops because of water from heavy rain. I wonder what my kids are going to eat for their bodies and health. You know, really what we would really like to see as an organisation is to appeal to the global community to meet their commitments to COP27 to stop the advance of climate change, the threats that that brings in terms of rising sea levels, disruption to climate patterns and the impact that has on sustainable food sources, and also to honour those commitments in terms of supporting those who are most vulnerable, particularly in the Pacific, to make sure that there are resources available for them to respond to that challenge. These are proving their worth as an effective side hustle, but they're also helping communities in the fight against climate change. That's because bees pollinate mangroves, which act as natural buffers against cyclones and sea level rise. Southern Cross University bee researcher Dr Cooper Shooton says it's a win-win. You know, honey production is what comes to mind for most people when they think of bees, but it's not just about honey. It's also about food and nutrition security through pollination and also other products that they're producing, such as, you know, beeswax and propolis. And you can value add to those products to produce a whole range of stuff like candles and lip balms and soaps and ointments and surf wax and surf zinc. And these all represent income generating opportunities and also they're cool products that local people can have access to as well. He says the demand for and value of bee products has been soaring because climate change and unpredictable honey flows had caused supply to plummet. But with ongoing support and training and respect for local knowledges, these bees and their new communities in Malaita can thrive. I haven't been to any Pacific Island country where I haven't met a beekeeper that is has been beekeeping for longer than I am old and they have incredible technical knowledge and skills and the ability to support the industries. We just need to listen and learn and work with a lot of these industry professionals that are already in these in these countries and be able to mobilise yeah, resources for creating change. That was University of Southern Queensland bee researcher Dr Cooper Shooton ending Melissa Macon's report. Thank you for joining us here on Pacific Beat. It is Aggie. Now to bring us the stories that are making news today, I'm joined by the beautiful Talia Aulitia. I just want to say good morning. How are you doing? Hello, Aggie. I'm doing all right, although this time last week I was in Vanuatu, so I can tell you it's a lot colder <laughs> <laughs> in this morning. It must have been really nice. 
really was. What a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, let's hope we can get to go there one day. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I want to start with the Solomon Islands PM. My goodness, who is visiting China? That's right. Manasseh Sogavari has flown to China for a visit designed to reinforce defence and economic ties between the two countries. Reuters reports that the PM has pledged to remain neutral. That is, of course, is amid rising competition between Beijing and the US. Now, the week-long trip, which is funded by Beijing, um, it will obviously start this week and Mr Sogavare will open the nation's embassy, meet Chinese companies and also visit Jiangsu and Guangdong. It's Mr Sogavare's first visit to Beijing since he signed that controversial security agreement that I'm sure we're all very aware of, which allowed upgrades to security at China's embassy in the Solomons. Of course, that alarmed Australia and other Western nations as they try to curb China's growing presence in the region. So I'm sure a lot of eyes are going to be on that visit this week. Yeah, I can only imagine. Hey, look, let's head to Fiji's uh, Deputy PM. Uh, he's dismissed rumours of a leadership challenge? Yeah, and speaking to Fiji Village, Manoa Kamikamitha has called social media rumours that he is planning to dethrone the Prime Minister Sitaveni Rambuka as, quote, absolute nonsense. The Deputy PM stressed that they are one team committed to one leader and that to be frank, he's just too busy fixing the country to worry or have time for power plays. Mr Kamikamitha says the rumours of a leadership challenge are just people desperate for gossip. It's unfortunate with Fiji, yeah. I feel like they're always riddled with... <laughs> Something's going Something's on. Something's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, the head of the United Nations, though, nuclear watchdog, is heading to Aotearoa, New Zealand and Rarotonga. Yeah, that's right. Rafael Grossi, he's the head of the International Atomic Energy, Energy Agency, otherwise known as the United Nations Nuclear Watchdog. And he's heading to the Pacific countries to present their report on the safety of the Alps treated water at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which Japan, which Japan rather, plans to discharge into the Pacific Ocean imminently, though a release date has still not been set. The nuclear watchdog has approved that planned release and Mr Grossi is expected to be in Auckland today and then in the Cooks tomorrow. In a tweet, Mr Grossi said he will, quote, address concerns, hear views and clarify the IAEA's role. Pacific Island Forum countries have differing views on the discharge of that treated nuclear wastewater, with some changing their initial stance following assurances from Japan that it would be safe. Um, To be fair, Mr Grossi is on a bit of a tour at the moment. He visited South Korea over the weekend in a similar bid to calm concerns about Japan's discharge. His arrival in South Korea was met with protests as community concerns continue about the planned release. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of reception he gets in the Pacific. Absolutely. And now we end off uh, the new coach of Moana Pacifica has been announced. Yeah, that's right. And he is someone who I'm sure if you follow rugby will be a very familiar name. I'm talking, of course, about former All Blacks legend Faalongutana Umanga, who's taking over from Aaron Major as the new coach of Moana Pacifica. He's signed a three-year contract from 2024 to 2026. was the first All Blacks captain of Pacific descent, and he coached Moana Pacifica in their debut match against the Māori All Blacks in 2020. 
He said in a statement from Moana Pacifica announcing that he will be the new head coach that he's always held a special place for the team since its inception and he's deeply honoured for the opportunity to take up the reins again as head coach. The Moana Pacifica chair, Lauli Savai, Sir Michael Jones, says Umanga will bring a wealth of experience and mana to the role and will be an invaluable asset both on and off the field. As well as 74 test caps for the All Blacks, Umanga also made 122 Super Rugby appearances for the Hurricanes and his coaching career is also pretty impressive. He's done stints with Manu Samoa in Toulon in France, Counties Manuka and the Blues. So hopefully that will be the inspiration Moana Pacifica needs next year, who, you know, they might even make the top eight. Are we calling it already? I think we are. I think we are. <laughs> Let's yes, do it. <laughs> hey, look, thank you so much, Talia, for bringing that uh, wrap up. Uh, we'll do the same thing same time tomorrow. It's a date. Thanks, Aggie. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you're listening to Pacific Beat with Aggie. Up next, uh, we head to FIFA's head of women's football and the legacy she wants to leave behind in the Pacific. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. Uh, you're tuning in to Pacific Beat with Aggie. Uh, FIFA's head of women's football hopes the legacy of the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand will be an explosion of interest in soccer in the Pacific. Uh, Sarai Behrman, the Kiwi Samoan who played for Samoa, then ran the Football Federation there, says what she calls the World Cup effect is one of the most transformational forces in women's sport today. She's in Australia ahead of the World Cup, which gets underway later this month, and sat down for a wide-ranging interview with Tracy Holmes. Uh, Ms Beerman starts by explaining how FIFA's lowest point, the actual corruption scandal of 2015, was possibly the best thing that could have happened to the women's game. There was a very dark moment for FIFA in 2015, uh, which led to the arrests of some of the top executives, basically for corruption. And although that was a difficult time for football, uh, it presented this incredible opportunity for women's football. And basically as part of this reform process that took place, it was recognised as the number one priority and the biggest growth opportunity to football and to our sport today. And that was a very, very clear message from the reform committee to the organisation that the position of woman in decision-making roles within football from the top all the way down to the bottom needed to be more. We also needed to have dedicated resourcing, ring fence specifically for the women's game. And all those 211 member countries around the world that belong to FIFA are constitutionally obliged to deliver women's football in their respective countries. One of the um, great lessons from Qatar, I Mm. think, was that we saw the World Cup uh, opened up to a whole new region, uh, both in the sorts of people that attended Mm. and even the teams that succeeded. Mm. You know, the the story of Morocco was sensational. 
But Morocco is also going to be competing in the Women's World yes. Cup here for the very first time. Yeah. And you've got a bit of a backstory, haven't you, about yeah. that? Yeah. You know what? Um, the Women's World Cup effect, that's what I call it, it can never be underestimated. And what I mean by that is it is the biggest moment of women's sports. And in that moment, it's not just about what happens on the field and who eventually lifts the trophy. There's so much going on around it. And Morocco is a perfect case. In France, in 2019, four years ago, the president of the Moroccan Federation, he was at the final. He was in that stadium in Lyon. He saw the full stadium, the, the crowd going absolutely nuts. He witnessed the amazing spectacle that was happening on the pitch, the sport itself. He saw the commercial activation, the interest from all the advertisers, everything. And it impacted him in a massive way. And so much so that he went home and he invested massively into women's football. He bought one of the best coaches in the world, the former Olympic Lyonnais, the best club in the world in the women's game. He bought the coach, put him in place leading the national team. He created a program from U15 all the way to seniors. I went there. The facilities for under 15 girls, because of this investment, are better than some of the professional facilities I've seen for men in Europe. Like, this is how much it impacted him. And as a result of that, they've now qualified for the first time ever and will be playing here in Australia and New Zealand later this year. It's been interesting watching, I guess it started in the US. That, that was yeah. where the domestic league kind of really took off and, mm. and set the benchmark. Now we've seen the European clubs and leagues taking over. Mm. But how far away is uh, an equivalence, if you like, of, mm. of quality domestic leagues yeah. in areas that currently don't have them? Yeah. You know what, this is a really good question and it's something that occupies a lot of my time. Um, it's very clear in the men's game that there are certain regions that really dominate um, and it's no secret, Europe, South America. In the women's game we're starting to see a trend towards that same way and what's really important for us at FIFA, particularly through events like the World Cup, that we try to rise all tides together mm. and there are big challenges around this you know some regions in the world women are not even allowed to play or enter onto a field mm. then you've got countries like current world champions united states where they're fully paid professionals playing on a regular basis it's some of the best known athletes in our sport and we do a lot of work on professionalization one of the biggest, biggest things we can do is invest into the clubs, the leagues and the grassroots. Um, and for me, competitions is important. We always talk about participation. We want 60 million women and girls. But honestly, if you don't have good competitions being played on a regular basis at every level, where are those girls going to go? Where are they going to go? So we put a huge amount of investment. We have a, a specific program which focuses on building and strengthening leagues around the world. And predominantly, we focus in regions where we know there is a huge gap between some of the bigger leagues, like the likes of Europe, United States of America that you mentioned. And the idea really behind that is to see how we can close that gap. Um, but 
One of the things I quite love about women's football is at U17 and U20 level, it's anyone's game. You'll see it. You, in one year, you'll have a team from Asia win. You can have a team from Comnibol win the next year, Europe. So actually, in women's football, at the youth level, up to U20, it's very even, and anyone can win and be world champions at that level. So what we have to focus on is between that U20 and the Senior World Cup, how do we keep that balance and close that performance gap? And it's got to be a concerted effort from many, many people, not just FIFA. How responsible does FIFA feel for driving those sorts of changes? Mm. Or is it enough for FIFA to provide the platform where change can be brought about because of things like what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia mm. with regard to women mm. or the changes that we saw happen in Qatar with regard to workers' rights? Yeah. Because a lot of people said FIFA should have done more. Yeah. How much can you do? Yeah. How big is your remit? <laughs> How well, many days are there in yeah, your week? Yeah, exactly. How many hours are there in a day? You know what? It's a combination of both. We have the platform. We have the most popular sport in the world. Literally millions and millions of women, girls, men and boys are playing our sport. So we have an obligation to use that platform as a way to better society. So there's that. But we also should be driving change. And Iran is a perfect example where we were able to use that platform to actually drive change and have women attending for the first time ever football matches in stadiums. I got a WhatsApp actually two days ago showing me a photo of the most recent local match where women in Iran were in the stadium celebrating. That's an example of how football can open doors and, and drive change. So it's a combination of both. I often think people believe our remit is much more <laughs> than what we can do. After all, we are only a sport, but we do not underestimate the power we have being the most popular sport in the world. And like I said, it can open doors that other traditional avenues cannot. When you're coming, representing FIFA, the biggest sport, representing football, there are conversations you can have that you otherwise would never be able to. And that's something that's really powerful and unique, and we don't take that lightly. When uh, the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup is all done, mm. what do you hope will be the legacy, both here in Australia and in New Zealand? Well, first of all, there should be, I, I want to see it be the number one participation sport in this country. And what struck me about Australia, which I didn't realise until they were awarded the hosting of this event, is how competitive the sporting environment here is. It's absolutely crazy. I think the only other place I think with that level of competitiveness is America, where the different sporting codes, they compete so massively. and. I'd love to see it be the number one participation sport for females here uh, in this country. And not only in terms of participation on the field, but participation in decision making, in the administration, in technical roles in and around the pitches, in the boardrooms, um, and fans. 
fans as well. You know, um, we were fortunate enough to be here when the A-League, the women's uh, A-League uh, final, you know, it was incredible to see a record crowd there, amazing, but I'd love to see that stadium full. And I think that will happen after this Women's World Cup. And the same in New Zealand. You know, we're always competing with rugby there. There's a much bigger lift to do in New Zealand um, in terms of growing the popularity of the sport. Um, here in Australia, the Matildas are massive. Everyone wants to be Sam Kerr. Um, the team is everywhere. In New Zealand, we don't quite have that with the football firms. There's some incredible athletes playing for some of the best teams in the world, but they're just not as known. So there I would love to see those women being recognised for the amazing work that they do and the incredible athletes they are. Um, but beyond New Zealand and Australia, the Pacific region for me is obviously very dear, uh, having spent so many years in Samoa, um, and the wider Asia region as well. Um, we've just got to break down those barriers and make sure that every opportunity that a young boy has through football is also there for every young girl. And just in closing, what role does Australia have in that, in the broader Oceania region? Yeah. Because after the World Cup, many of these nations will be back for the Olympic Games in yes. Brisbane 2032, which Brisbane promised would be a Games for the region. Yeah. What can Australia do to, to help facilitate that growth and that yeah. change in Oceania? A lot, a lot, yeah. Uh, through funding, through resource, and I know there's already a lot of that that goes on. Um, through the foreign affairs here, uh, but also expertise and capacity building. You know, people in the islands are so passionate about sport and the raw talent that exists in the athletes there, honestly, the potential is limitless. But often what is missing is the, the business acumen and just the, the capacity building around the administrative side, the governance side. And that's something that I think Australia is particularly strong in. And I think it's about getting in to the environment of the country because mm. you can't come in with an Australian lens into a Pacific island. You need to know and understand the culture in that country and then tailor make the support to the needs of that country. But I think Australia has a huge role to play in seeing sports grow and develop in the Pacific region. FIFA's Head of Women's Football, Sarai Berryman, speaking to Tracy Holmes. Uh, if you'd like to hear the full interview, the easiest place to find it is on YouTube. Just search for ABC News and Ticket to the Cup. Join me, Sosafina Formoli, for On the Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On the Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat with Aggie. Uh, often climate change is on the back of our minds, so it's forcing some Pacific villages and communities to relocate as rising sea levels make it impossible to stay on ancestral lands. As you can understand, there's a lot to consider when talking about relocating an entire village or community. This story from Fiji uh, it was recently aired on Pacific Prepared with Fred Hopper. We hear about relocation. People in the Pacific needing to look for new places to live. Most of it is related to climate change and the huge impact this has on homes and communities. An effect of relocation is how this changes the dynamic 
of a community or village. Relocation is possible, of course. People can move to a new place. But what about the things that can't be moved, like the connection to land or how a river influences a village, certain aspects of a place that form how a community sees themselves? It has a lot of implications and repercussions as well. Social, mostly social cultural. Josiah Nunga is a freelance reporter based in Fiji, and he has this story. There is a notable shift in environmental strategies to consider traditional practices. This was stated by the director of the Fiji Museum, Mr. Cipriano Nemani. Mr. Nemani says these were noted in rigorous international and local conferences in recent years. The impacts of climate change continue to alarm small island nations affecting traditions and culture. Nemani adds that traditional knowledge and practices are vital in mitigating climate change and can sustain one's traditional identity. Uh, in Fiji, we have a lot of um, uh, communities that have gone through this process and now uh, I think there are more than 20 or 30 communities that are in the pipeline awaiting relocation uh, to higher ground uh, because they are very susceptible to uh, sea level rise. Eh? Um, and it's really a sad thing because uh, um, uh, one of the key things besides uh, them losing their, uh, you know, their cultural spaces, they are also losing their connection to that land, their connection to the ancestors who have inhabited that land, you know, centuries, hundreds of years ago, uh, and uh, they've uh, created that connection, but also their cultural affiliation towards the land eh? uh, and the environment surrounding that. Eh? So with their movement, um, there's a lot of implications. Uh, and right now, uh, say for example, the movement of our people from the village of uh, Wunindongoloa in Banuelevo uh, 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 to higher ground, um, although it's a, a good thing, uh, it was seen as a, uh, an achievement by um, our government and of course those involved in relocating these communities to higher ground. But in fact, it has a lot of implications and repercussions as well. Social, mostly social cultural. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, with the with, uh, relocation of our people, they've lost contact with their fishing ground. Okay, they have this connection with the fishing ground. Their totems, a lot of them have clear totems that connect them, not their, their land, their villages, to the sea. That story from Pacific Prepared on ABC Radio Australia. Aggie here on Pacific Beat. Uh, up next, we've got Taurus Strength Knowledge via Virtual Reality. Want to know what that is? That's up next. Virtual reality is all about immersing users in a world unlike their own. Uh, because of this, it can be a powerful cultural tool. Dr. Rhett Lobin has developed a VR game to communicate tourist straight knowledge. The science show producer, Shelby Trainer caught up with him after he was nominated for the NIDOC Innovation Award for 2023. I really liked the idea of putting on the headset and immersing yourself there or looking up at the sky and seeing some constellations there, or diving into the water and then going through the reef or seeing the crayfish migration, or even walking around on land and encountering kind of these different story characters and seeing those different aspects, cultural aspects, environmental aspects. Dr. Rhett Loban is describing his virtual creation, or virtual reconstruction, of the Torres Strait. 
There are dozens of islands in the Torres Strait, and Dr Loban wanted more people to experience the region, even when they aren't physically there. This computer-generated world isn't just an immersive experience, but a game designed to educate. It's a VR game, so you'll put on these headsets, and when you first start off, it'll set you on Mabiog Island, and it'll tell you that family members passed away, and you need to collect different items and foods for the tombstone opening. The tombstone opening is the tradition of removing a final veil from the tombstone of the deceased. It's a sombre yet celebratory event which brings families together from far and wide, and it sets the virtual character off on a journey. It might be a year, two years after somebody's passed away. You have their end of the mourning period, and that's signified by unveiling the tombstone. You have cloth over it. And when you unveil it, sometimes there's different items under it. There's singing, dancing, there's feasting there as well. And because these are like community events, people have different responsibility. And in this game, it's your responsibility to collect a wop, warup, uh, some more spears and mats, and these different items as well as dugong and turtle, and that's for the feast. These tasks take the player out into different parts of the virtual Torres Strait, helping them learn about unique wildlife and traditions. They even send you on a journey north to trade with people from Papua New Guinea for some of the items you'll need. From there, you'll need to go to the reefs to collect turtle and dugong. That gives you the opportunity to kind of explore the reef. Dr. Loban says he designed the game to be an open world to encourage exploration and discovery outside of these tasks. So he's placed other characters and threads into the world for a curious player to explore. So you have Wawa the giant there, and he kind of features as a antagonist in some stories in the Torres Strait. And then we have Kupas the crab, and I've put him on Turnagain Island, which is an abandoned island. I've got different dugais there as well, so they're like female spirits. There's one on Boigu as well. And I've put Metakura up there, so she's a dugai, and basically she sleeps in a guinea fowl nest. So when people are looking for eggs, she has like an <laughs> an egg attached to her forehead, and they grab it and they pull her out. The dugais have kind of like different abilities. So in that story, she kind of commands insects and butterflies. So when you walk into the foresty area, you'll start to see all these just butterflies swarming around you. Aside from mesmerizing the player with swarms of butterflies, why virtual reality? And why make it a game? I really liked the idea of learning through processes and immersion because I felt I had learned a lot through games myself in that way. But in order for the game to be an educational experience, Dr Loban says he had to do some learning himself. I'm Torres Strait Islander, but I don't have all the expertise on this. So what I was doing was trying to integrate different sources of information and different perspectives. So an elder was involved in, so my dad was there and he was kind of giving his input, but he was also providing things like sketches that I was taking and converting into 3D objects. If you go through the game, he's actually the narrator. Dr Loban also reached out to the broader community to play the game and provide feedback. 
This kind of consultation and workshopping went hand in hand with the cultural protocols Dr Loban had grown up with. From my family in, in some Torres Strait Islander communities, we go through a process of consultation. For me, that was interesting that those software development practices aligned with those cultural practices and they actually synchronised and helped each other. While the game isn't publicly available yet, Dr Loban says it has proven itself as a powerful educational tool, including in an environmental policy class to illustrate the importance of trade and hunting practices. We implemented it at the University of New South Wales in a bunch of different ways. So we did it in one class just as a game for learning and a game that used new or innovative technology at that time. It's also been used in an Indigenous Studies course to show how knowledge can be shared in new ways and in an Indigenous Education course as an example of how projects like this one can be built in line with cultural protocols. Virtual reality still has a little bit of a way to go, I think. For me, I see the real value of virtual reality as learning through kind of like immersion and presence in that place. So what started out as a fun new way to explore and immerse people in the Torres Strait has evolved into a versatile educational tool. It's why this project has been recognised by the NAIDOC Week Awards, because it's opening up new ways for First Nations Australians and all Australians to connect to country. There's a lot of virtual reality simulations that take you into space, they put you in the bottom of the sea, they shrink you down and put you into the human body, or it could be like on the other side of the world. And in this case, it's the Torres Straits. Everything's kind of augmented, the trees seem more vibrant. You start paying attention to things that you might not necessarily pay to otherwise. Those kinds of experiences, they can stick with you. And I think that's useful in a learning context. That's Dr. Rita Loban, researcher and lecturer at Macquarie University. You can hear more from The Science Show on the ABC Listen app or listen live Saturdays at midday. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat here on Monday morning. For more of our stories, just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia in your search engine. News is next, and then it's Jacob Maguire will be along for your Nisha Daily. Uh, I'm Aggie DeBole here on Pacific Beat. It's been my pleasure to hang out with you this morning. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's at 6am PNG time. Otoa Bye.